Welcome to Living Beyond Limits with Ian Robertson. As a continuation of what we've been talking about in my prior podcasts, I want to continue the conversation specifically around trauma. And today I thought I might focus on how trauma and addictions might uh, or does intersect each other. There's a history, first of all, that I would like to cover around uh, addictions itself which I think is important to understand the underpinnings of the kind of models that have been used historically in addictions. I mean, addictions has had a very strong root that mostly started out of the historical context of the, um, per se, the kind of combination between a spiritual and medical model. It goes as far back as Schumacher, a Presbyterian or a Episcopalian minister, uh, in the States, it, out of compassion, started to offer uh, basically groups with compassion and kindness for folks that were suffering with alcoholism. I mean, later on, it moved on to things such as the Oxford Movement, which then moved into the the beginnings of the AA model, which have been quite helpful and supportive for many people um, that have suffered with uh, forms of alcoholism and and um, you know, the struggles that go along with alcoholism has been a place for many people to experience a sense of community and connection and be able to go somewhere where they felt understood and there was some form of commonality and and certainly a degree of compassion and openness where um, people who were suffering didn't feel so alone because addictions in and of itself does, and alcoholism, create uh, such an aloneness and isolation. Um, when we think about addictions, at the at the underpinnings of addictions that causes this aloneness is shame. Uh, shame is so profound, and you know one could argue was shame there long before the addiction started for many of our clients. When we think about trauma from a complex perspective, complex trauma, developmental, <clears throat> much of the shame for many people who suffer with alcoholism and other substance abuse has started long before. It, it, it is of as the results of environments that were not nurturing and environments that were not uh, creating what we'd say healthy attachments, but attachments that were formed in disorganization, anxious and avoidance types uh, attachments, and environments that weren't validating and, and also reassuring and uh, emotionally nurturing to too many of our clients when we think about the the impact of trauma within alcoholism and substance abuse um, it's not much different in mental health but we do understand that the largest majority up to 90 to 95 percent of people that come into the mental health systems and the addiction system have some forms of a historical trauma of which many have experienced up to 50 percent plus exposures in early childhood. So the impact of trauma within the field of addictions is of a profound and uh, somewhat epic magnitude. The history of uh, uh, addictions itself and addiction treatment was kind of looking at uh, the idea that alcoholism in its early days and addictions itself is a chronic relapsing disease of the brain in which the brain has been hijacked and used and use this kind of substances um, and, and also is grounded in some compulsive behaviors that keeps the addiction going. And this is under kind of some of the, the thinking of Stantiel and Clant and uh, Linfield, who describe uh, addictions as a chronic relapsing disease. 
And again, going to the words hijacked, the word hijacked is kind of interesting because I guess that kind of word hijacking is kind of comes out of the criminal justice system uh, in their definition and, you know, creates some responsibility that, you know, speaks to um, obviously people, um, you know, with uh, some forms of addictions that, uh, you know, place responsibility for their addictions uh, of being in the wrong place, wrong time, namely that the drugs or activities of themselves have um, taken over them and led to obviously choices and behaviors that were, um, you know, uh, certainly implicated them into um, some forms of legalities. Um, you know, the disease part of the thinking, so to say, the hijacked, the hijacked perspective of substance use and that languaging, which is criminal justice. And then we see the disease perspective also speaks to one other side of the, of the thinking, um, <clears throat> you know, as, as addiction being some form of a disease, uh, compulsive and um, uh, disease that progresses and continues to be um, over time becomes worse and worse. What we do understand is addictions, frankly, cannot be described in and of itself as kind of a, either some forms of hijacking criminal kind of thing that takes over the mind or a medical problem. The neurological and the biomedicine implications about the role of a broken brain and addiction neurobiologically uh, cannot be the whole story that, that we have to think about when we're looking at um, addictions. In, a, in, in the fellowship of, of AA, there, there's a statement they say of being sick and tired of being sick and tired. Um, kind of at that point, people reach this moment of maybe clarity or insight or depth of understanding. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of interesting because the disease model, how, uh, however, kind of challenges is that the brain is kind of hijacked and taken over uh, uh, in, t in terms of being hijacked and making some forms of choices. Cannot, uh, addictions actually does not operate automatically. Uh, people with some forms of or with addictions in themselves are not completely out of, con you know, not able to have some control. So there is some level of retained control that occurs within addictions. But addictive urges are not entirely uncontrollable. They can be controlled at least for a short while and sometimes even longer if the stakes are high enough or are clear enough. Uh, and that's kind of described as uh, by Holton and Barrich in 2013. I mean, there's this idea that there is, it is addictions is absolutely uncontrollable. Uh, I mean, th there is some degree where there, there is a, a level of control or ability to control because at some point when people come out of addictions, they have to start to kind of challenge these belief systems, these subconscious belief systems of I can't control it and begin to challenge and figure your way through that so that, um, you know, potentially recovery from this can be a possibility. How does the capacity of choice coexist with the self-destructive addictive behaviors? Well, a choice in itself, when oftentimes people see people with addictions and they see that they have a choice, uh, this leads to forms of stigma uh, in that those with substance use dependency are, are viewed as being weak, willed, or have shortcomings in their character. Uh, choice is, is probably not helpful. I've oftentimes people heard people in different professions talking about addictions as they made a choice. Uh, well, the degree of choice and, and what that might look like for somebody suffering with addiction as compared to somebody who doesn't is quite different. So I do need to say that when your brain becomes neurobiologically now 
um, somewhat wired and mapped out for addictions in which, you know, things such as in the brain, dopamine, which is the memory cell, um, kind of gets in the way of the natural body's systems to create emotions through certain types of chemicals, serotonin, or all these types of things. It becomes a blocker and that the brain understands the only way to feel pleasure and reward in the nucleus accumbent is, is through a substance and that's the only way the brain understands it and the natural body system of how we're supposed to do this shuts down. Well, the choice is different because obviously uh, that's where the idea of dependency kicks in. Oh, dopamine itself is called the memory cell. It remembers, even if you stop, it still remembers very quickly addictions and can um, activate at any point when somebody maybe stop for a period of time, re-engage back with using substances, you know, dopamine remembers, right? So when we think about trauma and addiction, trauma is really about the fragmentation and disconnections um, that people experience as a result of uh, uh, traumatic experiences. And these tra uh, traumatic experiences create fragmentations in self and disconnection. Um, societal fragmentation and fracturing of meaning leads to the dislocation, disestrangement, and disconnection uh, between people suffering with some forms of addiction as a result of trauma and the world around them. They begin to feel alienated in their human suffering, exasperated, um, exasperating kind of the burdens of stress and inner pain and shame. Trauma does create a sense of being alone. Again, another sense of shame, another sense of disconnection. And when we look at these types of experiences that people now suffer with as a result of trauma, they definitely intersect with the experiences of people who also are chronic substance users, alienation, disconnection, and shame. And all of this does become compounded. Without connection, people feel very left alone in the dark. People who suffer from trauma and have had traumatic experiences, uh, experience and, and addictions, experience the marginalization, exclusion from many societal uh, groups uh, only because it sets off alarm bells in areas of the brain um, and signaling pain that is physical and emotional, which in itself leads to more addiction and using as a functional fit to cope and manage it. Addictions in itself becomes a failed attempt at a solution to a problem and a failed adaptation from trauma as an approach to manage unwanted pain of disconnection. So remember that the addiction is a, 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 a person's not only failed attempt, but a, a kind of a functional fit to manage inner pain of disconnection and human suffering. You know, when we look at it today, most clinicians still are shying away from asking about things such as sexual and emotional abuse. Um, when we when we're inquiring about problematic use of substances, uh, and this is written in the literature of Bon Miller and uh, Bukosi and Tafton, they ball report, report still today. There is this myth that lies out there in the field of addictions that we don't want to open it up if we can't close it. And if I if I ask the question, I might be re-traumatizing somebody. 
still in my world of consultation as I go around and work with addiction treatment facilities and mental health systems and hospitals, my message to all of them is, if we don't ask the question, we're not going to know. And if we don't ask the question and, and, and understand it, we are going to harm somebody by not knowing. And when trauma-informed practices in the front door don't ask very specific questions, it doesn't mean that we have to get into the whole details. Just, I would say, like a newspaper, the headlines ask the basic questions and inquire, have you experienced any victimization, any abuse? Um, under the age of 13, did you experience any forms of, of, of punishment or corporal punishment that was of a stronger nature, slapped, hit, sexually assaulted, or any types of inappropriate touch that you didn't consent to, um, or any types of violence? These questions and many more do need to be asked. And I do think that the questions, however simple that we, we may lay them up at the front door, are important so that we can understand the client's experience, and also the exposures they've had, especially when we think of things like the adverse childhood experiences scale, the A-score, that helps us to understand also the degree of exposures. Because working with clients, we need to know a little bit about their trauma exposures so we can understand how addictions intersects with this, especially for those who experience features of dissociation and reenactments and so many other things. Again, I want to go back to when we think about trauma and addictions. Both conditions share experiences of shame and discomfort, and they feel blamed uh, and societally judged for their situation. At the core of all trauma work is safety. Safety becomes a barrier to disclosure and openness in the sharing of the story, the experiences that our clients have. When there isn't safety, there cannot be the safe place to open up and for somebody to talk about what happened to them. What we know is that there's high rates, again, of PTSD among those seeking help for addictions. Those with PTSD and substance use disorders, core morbidity, also have high rates of comorbid psychiatric disorders, anxiety, depression, poor treatment outcomes for sure, and very high rates of relapse. Bessel van der Kolb kind of established the connection between trauma and addictions in his research, and he kind of stated that trauma victims attempt to control their internal state of hyperarousal or hypoarousal. Hyper, the activation of the sympathetic system, which activates the fight or flight symptoms, uh, the hypo, which, as we understand from polyvagal theory, is the dorsal vagal nerve, which activates the dissociative collapse or the freeze response. In socialization, emotional pain, anger through, subs uh, and anger through substances um, is used as a way to quiet their inner struggle and restore their sense of control over their, you know, their inner tumultuous world. So... When we think about addictions and we think about trauma, addictions is the means to manage the inner state of what somebody is going through as a result of trauma and living in either feeling too much or feeling too little and never being able to kind of manage the middle. And when you spend your majority of your life living in feeling too much or too little, feeling the over-aroused um, sympathetic fight or flight response, which takes you into extreme outburst reactions and um, 
you know, certainly fear responses are strong or the dorsal, dorsal collapse, the dissociative uh, collapse, freeze response. Substances play a part in both those states. Substance use becomes a reliable source of mood management uh, that temporarily masquerades as kind of a, restore, a restoration of the trauma victim's kind of inner equilibrium, bringing them back into this middle point. Uh, it's a method of self-medicating their pain in an attempt to restore back to baseline, which we talked about, which is that kind of middle state. The addictive process uh, in itself compli complicates the matters uh, and takes on kind of a life of its own. Uh, so in the best attempt to use substances to manage the situation in a person's inner state, now the substances has created an even greater problem, the withdrawal from uh, the authentic emotions and alienations uh, from the self that the drug induces leaves kind of trauma victims feeling even more helpless and the learned helplessness of trauma victims is thereby reinforced. Uh, when the substances kind of wear off, the traumatic pain becomes even more unbearable and overwhelming. Uh, now, leading to further isolation, leading to, I would even say it's not just, I'm thinking it isolation, it's compound isolation, compound shame, and compound unresolved pain as it just continues to stack or scaffold one on top of the other. PTSD and substance use disorders, um, now become kind of a vicious cycle. The emotional and the psychological pain and the self-medication with alcohol, drugs, potentially sex, food, gambling. And then they sober up, re-emerging of the unresolved compound pain. They leads them back to more self-medicating and it just continues on and on and on. And the addiction process takes on a life of its own and leaves kind of people with historical trauma more and more helpless, feeling more and more disempowered hopeless and alone, um, and then continuing to repeat the cycle in this in this wheel. So I hope this was very helpful for you, just a very brief conversation around how trauma and addictions can intersect. And certainly, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. Um, I'm going to move on to the next podcast where we talk a little bit more about addictions and, and trauma and how they can continue to intersect. I'm going to talk a little bit about the neurobiology of addictions, which I think is super important to understand because the first phase in treating trauma and addictions is stabilization. And that means stabilizing the symptoms of addictions. But while at the same time, once you take away the addictions, you're having to stabilize also the, the strong states that emerge as a result, the traumatic stages, uh, states that emerge, the fear response, the fight, flight, the over, over, under active nervous system, and how to help our clients while we uh, shift them away from addictions. At the same time, we're also working with trauma and their inner state and providing them the skills and the tools in order for them to enter into a form of inner stabilization or begin the process of inner stabilization, which is managing the brain-body connection, mostly the body, because we, we frankly know that even when the, the brain's not aware, the body is always scanning for safety. And so our clients with addictions have very um, hypersensitive um, responses in the body. And reconnecting the body and the brain and learning how to create this inner safety is the first stage in in working with addictions and trauma collaborative hey listen i want to thank you for uh, listening to this podcast 
Um, I deeply appreciate appreciate any of my listeners. Uh, I do hear that some have found this these podcasts is helpful. So continue to listen. Uh, any topics that you'd like me to talk about or, or add into these podcast series, just reach out to me. Uh, it's Ian Robertson, Therapy and Counseling. Again, thank you very much. Have yourself have yourself a great week, and you take care. Bye bye.